You're listening to the Write Right Podcast with the Story Perfect Editing Services team. Visit us at www.storyperfectediting.com for more information on developmental editing, copy editing, and proofreading services for your novel. Season 1, Episode 1. Welcome to the Write Right Podcast with the Story Perfect Editing Services team. Uh, I'm Elon. And I'm John Robin. I'm Katie. I'm Dale. And I'm Lizette. Yeah, and we're very excited. This is kind of a pilot episode. We're not even sure if we're going to publish it. We're just experimenting, and we're thrilled to be seeing one each other, one another, one each other. I need that edited. Can you help? <laughs> Uh, one another in the digital flesh. Uh, so this month, I suppose, because we're doing a monthly podcast, this month we're going to talk about what hooks a reader. Uh, and this can be a variety of things. It can be tension that's introduced even past the first chapter. It can be something that really grips you in the prologue. It can be something that you just love about the first page, the first sentence. Uh, and I have not a lot of experience editing, and particularly in fiction. So I'm going to come at it from the perspective of a reader. Uh, but we have some fantastic editors on the team with us that can go into sort of techniques to talk about how you come to uh, to hook a reader structurally, uh, be it in a prologue, be it in a first page, or be it in the first third of a book. Uh, so I want to start with a book that I just finished, published by Tachyon. It's called Slow Bullets by Alastair Reynolds. Uh, it was really fantastic, and the first page really spoke to me. Uh, because it did such a fantastic job of setting up uh, character emotion uh, and world in a really short space. You know, this, this first page, I'm showing it to the team, uh, but without the benefit of the video feed, you can't understand just how few <laughs> words this is. Uh, and if you guys don't mind, I'm just kind of going to read it to you, uh, because I think that it was really good. All right, so here we go. No copyright infringement intended. Oh, none. None whatsoever. This is all, it's parody, don't you know? Read promotion. <laughs> or news uh, broadcasting review. Uh, my mother had a fondness for poetry. When my sister died, but before the news of my own conscription, mother showed me passages from a work by Gearson. It was a poem called Morning Flowers. This was an illegal act. Gearson was the official war poet for the Central Worlds. Her works were banned in the peripheral systems, considered propaganda. But Gearson had been famous before the war, and my mother had collected several of her anthologies. She was supposed to have handed these books in during one of the amnesties. My mother could not do that. One of them had, had been a gift from Vavarel, with an inscription in Vavarel's beautiful flowing hand. My sister had always had better handwriting than me. Um, so that's the entirety of the first page of this book. And when I read it, I was like, wow, there's a lot here. And I really want to turn this page desperately and find out more because we get this notion of a like, recalcitrant soldier. We get uh, death in the family. We get uh, additional family members who prefer art to the law. Uh, and we see that there is a galactic scale conflict. And all of that information is compressed into this very short, highly informative, and in my opinion, very excellently put together first page. Um, and you know, I compare that 
this experience specifically to a lot of other books that I read, a lot of epic fantasies that I think don't necessarily work on getting a great first page, because when you got like 900, you can afford to make that first chapter really strong. But when you have a, you know, 150 page book, that first page is enormous. Uh, so, for instance, I'm comparing that with The Eye of the World by Robert Jordan, where the first page is nothing to write home about. It's like, it was windy and he had a bow. That's the entirety of the first page. <laughs> but the prologue, which is, you know, like 50 pages, is extraordinary. And it's one of the my favorite prologues I've ever read. It's this amazing sequence between, uh, you know, Luz Theron Telamon and... Uh, I forget, what is it, Ishamael? Who is Ishamael, Ishamael, yeah. yeah. Ishamael, yeah. The, the representative of the Dark One. And it's just like this explosive thing that is so out of control, huge. And then uh, Jordan kind of brings it back into like small town setting where he's like, well, it's windy and a boy is walking from his farm to his small town, which is like an all-day thing. Um, and I find that contrast between... Uh, this approach in epic fantasy and this approach in sort of uh, short form sci-fi to be really telling. Um, and, you know, those are just two examples of the so many that, that I can think of on my bookshelf downstairs. Um, but I wanted to sort of bring these two and contrast them and then ask you guys what you think about uh, the hook in the first page or the hook in the prologue. So you mean that is a general, like, not just these books, but in general, in general using yeah. that technique? Okay. Um, should we maybe just take turns going around? Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you have a thought, just jump on in. There's no, this is totally free form, just a conversation. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'll start by saying I hate prologues. I really, I don't know why, maybe I haven't read books with really great prologues, but I feel like if it doesn't fit, if you can't explain it in the story, don't tell me. Like, I appreciate that there can be, like, an interesting contrast between the prologue and the first page, so that the first page then becomes sort of a surprise. Uh, but I feel like the prologue is just when they can't figure out how to put that information anywhere else. Hmm. I agree with Katie, because, like, for myself, whenever I read books, I absolutely despise flashbacks, because I feel like it's one of the laziest ways of storytelling, of getting across, you know, past information for myself. I, well, I mean, uh, I, I remember I sat on a live action slush session. So this is a, this is a session at a writing conference where you have a bunch of uh, editors that will listen to the opening page of people's manuscripts that they submit randomly. And uh, the editors put their hands up when they decide they would stop reading. And then when three or more have put their hands up, they stop and then they go through the line of editors to say why. That's so it's so very harsh. informative. That's <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very informative for the writers. Um, but one interesting mm. example of that, <laughs> um, they had a, a prologue. And as soon as the reader said the word prologue, I think it's very common that editors hate prologues. Um, I personally am not against prologues, but I think, it, the prologue has to be uh, called for. Like in the case of Wheel of Time, I think that prologue is awesome. Yeah, I wouldn't be I surprised mean. if Robert Jordan wrote that after the fact. Like I, I don't think he wrote. I think sometimes, like like you, uh, like Katie, you're saying that sort of like you go and set the story up and then tell the story. Yeah. And I think a lot of, especially in fantasy, a lot of people approach it that way. Um, 
where you know I I have uh, I wrote a, a short story called One Who Waits, which might become the prologue to Blood Done. I don't know yet if that's going to happen. Um, but I'm hesitant to make a prologue because I don't think it needs a prologue. So I think it's something a writer should always really weigh carefully. Is is that is that where your story starts? Is there sort of a, a early event that is um, uh, underneath the narrative that's going to kind of bleed through so that the reader, having read that prologue, feels like they're launched into action and then, you know, maybe the rest of the story might happen a little later. But this sort of event needs to be uh, like in, at the heart of the story. In the case of the prologue to the Wheel of Time, that event is at the heart of the entire series. Yeah, uh, it yeah, comes yeah. back, it, it, and we we get echoes of it all throughout the the rest of the narrative. So in that case, it's a brilliantly placed prologue. It's, it's the um, biggest foreshadowing in any series, right? It's like a fourteen book callback. Uh, yeah, one of the things I think is interesting. So you. I, I agree in a lot of ways that a, a prologue is only valuable if it has value, I guess. That's a really lame tautology. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm thinking about the prologue for the Wheel of Time and comparing it to the prologue in George Martin's series, um, which I find incredibly frustrating, right? Because he sets up this grand, you know, world-scale conflict and then just never talks about it again mm. for like six books or whatever we're at now. Uh, it certainly feels like a slog to get back to this this wonderful idea of like a you know global scale conflict between the forces of cold and the forces of hot, uh, and so I guess there are some serious considerations, and I think a lot of people uh, grew up reading books that had prologues because it might be kind of an old school approach. Now that we're talking about it this way, uh, that was actually good... my thought. Oh, go ahead, Lizette. Oh, sorry. Um, my thought was that, like, um, I feel like every book I read between the ages of 11 and 14 had a prologue. Mm -hmm. So I kind of wonder if a lot of writers who depend on it just kind of think, like, that's the way they're supposed to do it. Like, it's a lot of the, Yeah, like, a lot of the writing ticks that we pick up, we pick up really early. Yeah. And a lot of the bad habits we develop. Yeah, I started that an epic thing. fantasy project that I've let kind of fall to the side. Um, and I pulled an absolute, like, I really like the eye of the world. I'm going to write a really big prologue and then have nothing to do with it for a while. <laughs> um, and everyone who read it, and I got about like 40,000 words in before I told myself that it was a too big of a project and I needed to focus on something a little smaller. Uh, everyone who read it was like, well, that, why? <laughs> what is the what is the purpose of this? Are you gonna are you gonna talk about this or are you not gonna talk about this? Um, and so I understand where you're coming from, you know, uh, with this notion of inspiration from older books or uh, just feeling kind of like you have to. Um, I think something that's in older books that I like, as opposed to like maybe even an alternative to a prologue, is a map, mm -hmm. right? Totally. Like books that have a map on the inside cover. I love because then you can sort of get and even like you can still illustrate conflicts on the map too mm -hmm. without like all the wordiness that tends to accompany those sorts of explanations. Mm -hmm. I like that. Think about like uh, uh, techniques, for instance, in Dune or uh, uh, there are a lot of books that do this. I'm thinking like Sanderson's um, his big series, The Stormlight Archive. Uh, introducing chapters with quotes that kind of set the stage, mm -hmm. and a lot mm -hmm. of the time they'll serve as a hook. So like the first chapter of the Stormlight Archive 
has like a crazy quote about someone being killed and the entire prologue which it has a very large and you know action-packed prologue uh with someone being killed it's a different person being killed in the quote before the first chapter but it seems and i guess that that moment in the prologue is vital for the stormlight archive as well it's this it's this sort of larger scale conflict piece that eventually becomes necessary information that i suppose he couldn't fit anywhere else in a flashback chapter or you know hinted at in various moments of dialogue so i guess the question as editors when a project hits your desk and it has a prologue uh what is your first approach what do you do i know for me um i'm not turned off by a prologue just because it's a prologue um but my big thing would be to read the entire story and look at the story as an entirety and then look at that prologue and see is that prologue necessary uh, if we cut the prologue and started in the uh, first chapter, uh, would the would the story be fine without it? You know that that's sort of like you know I I guess you maybe call it the prologue test. <laughs> Just <laughs> try cutting it out. And you, you you take I take that approach uh, sometimes with sentences. Like there might be something uh, an author has said in a manuscript, and and I'll challenge them to just cut the sentence. And you know. If you cut it out and you feel like something's missing, well, then you had something important to say with it. But if you cut it out and nothing is missing from the story, then uh, you don't need it. Um, it's a hard. I think it's. It depends on a writer's maturity as well. Uh, some writers, their, their first book, they they're in love with everything they've written. So to try to say no prologue <laughs> can really get hackles up. But I mean. Um, you know, just in my experience as a writer, uh, myself, I, I'm not attached. I'm happy to kill stuff, but just get rid of chapters because you can always rewrite it. And so I think working, you know, if you work with a, a writer who has, who has been through the editing process and has that maturity to, to, to do that. I mean, it's, it's as far as the prologue goes, um, if it's, if it suits the work, great. I mean, uh, I, I have no problem including a prologue. I think that's a good approach, John, like to compare and see if you can just cut it. I might try that, but what I usually do is compare like the first sentence of the prologue with the first sentence of the first chapter. Mm. If they have an amazing first sentence of their first chapter, like you were saying, Elon, and their prologue is decreasing the effectiveness of that first chapter, then like, I don't want it there ruining the reader's beginning. Like if the beginning should be that first chapter that's beautifully set up and the prologue is ruining that somehow, um, I'll, I'll mix it. <laughs> when you're wearing your editor hat, um, is there something about the term prologue that makes you a little more cautious in that direction? Say chapter two has a fantastic opening and it really feels like the start of the book. Would you take that same approach or would you... How would you how would you deal with that issue compared to prologue versus chapter one? Well, and maybe Lizette can weigh in on this, and she does a lot of the developmental editing. Mm -hmm. But like, I think that's a developmental issue. You can say, you know, this second chapter should really be the first chapter, and maybe they can rearrange it. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, should I like elaborate? expand? <laughs> you don't have to if you feel like it's all been said. Uh, it's, it's no, a I mean, um, 
I mean, I, I do agree that if you are going through it and you do see that other things start things off better, definitely suggest it. But I'm not exactly turned off when I see the word prologue, which now makes me feel if I'm like some kind of an anomaly. Because <laughs> um, it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, I'm not but, even bothered um, by it. I, I I, of, I, oh, sorry. Uh, oh, go on, go on. I'll hold the thought. Um, oh, oh, man, I just lost my train of thought. Um, okay, well, um, <laughs> <laughs> like, um, I'm sort of, I think I kind of have the patience of a saint when it comes to reading stuff. Like, I'll pretty much sit and take whatever is thrown at me. And I won't realize until the end of the book that I'm pissed about having to read garbage. Um, so it's usually kind of like, I'll sort of weigh the prologue against like the entire rest of the book. Mm -hmm. I feel like if asked to stop reading when I find something not interesting, I think I would fail that test of flying colors. I'm pretty much gonna be like, well, let's see where this goes. And if it goes straight to hell, oops, heck, um, <laughs> then I'll really only kind of make that decision once I've completed the whole thing. So sometimes, I guess, a prologue can seem completely out of place, but I won't really make that decision until I've read the whole book, if that makes any sense. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, it's a lot like what John was saying earlier, the, which, which you named the prologue test, uh, which I like very much, which is read the whole <laughs> book. Uh, not an easy test to perform on any manuscript. Um, <laughs> what about... You know, it's probably genre specific, right? If you're writing a, a mystery, if you're writing an epic fantasy, if you're writing science fiction, if you're writing short fiction, it needs to be the first sentence and the first paragraph. Uh, what do you think about, uh, I mean, uh, fr phrasing this question is kind of, it's falling apart as I'm asking it, um, but how do you, what, what sort of allowances do you make based on genre when you don't find the hook early enough? Uh, so for me, I did read a book like this, and I loved it. It was Ready Player One, which is oh, amazing. But early on, that is a lot of history to drudge through. It's like the whole history of events that you haven't experienced. And it was dry for me until like chapter four. Mm. But I think that it's important as a reader and as an editor, like a chapter, even sometimes five chapters is not enough. Like you really, <laughs> it's the same test. You have to read the whole book. <laughs> pretty much no matter what sometimes. Uh, I mean, if you get halfway through and it's still going nowhere, I might, like, maybe scan ahead, but... Uh... Yeah. But wouldn't a reader, like, a typical reader from, I don't know, Starbucks, just, like, put uh, instantly just put the book down, in that case, if, if it's that dry? Some of them, maybe. I mean, I guess it depends on the reader, right? Like, I'm a really avid reader, and I was really determined to like Ready Player One, which is why I didn't give up. So you're <laughs> That's right, a like huge some, part of it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I had decided I was going to like this book, and I made it happen. So <laughs> yeah, that's I, a really good point. I think some people are going to give up. Um, I mean, a lot of readers do, but I think it also depends. Like, if you've gone out of your way to buy this book, you're probably going to read it anyway, right? Yeah. Like, if you've already bought it. Yeah, I kind uh, of think yeah. that we make that decision when we're like looking at the back of the book whether yeah. we're going to like it or not like yeah if i read a back of book and it it's just like white boys whining i'm gonna go into that <laughs> knowing i'm gonna hate it i wish that was a genre at barnes and noble <laughs> that would make such a fantastic shelf to ignore um you know i think that's a really interesting point that we can actually i think this is a fantastic topic for another podcast 
uh, how to write your log line, what to what to put together for the back of a book, uh, how to really elegantly pull a reader in without giving away too much in, you know, four sentences. Uh, essentially pitching your book differently because you have to pitch it differently to an agent or to a publisher or to readers. And if you're going the indie publishing route or ink shares or any of these other incredible options available to, to you now, uh, that approach will necessarily differ for every attempt you make. Um, and Has anyone here ever failed? Has everyone here ever opened a book that you bought and not finished it? You were like, I hate it. I'm, I'm not uh, going to make it. Uh, not that I bought, but books that I've been given definitely. Uh, <laughs> I was given H.W. What's his name? Somerset's of Human Bondage. Have you heard of this book? It's an what old book. It? It's okay. not fantasy or sci-fi. It's an, an old book. Someone gave it to me in the wake of a very terrible breakup. Probably a big part of why I didn't read it. Uh, instead, I read all of the Twilight series. So if you don't want to be my friend anymore, that yeah. is okay. Solidarity, Elon. Elon you know, this sexy vampire thing is hard to stop. Uh, so listeners, if you want to know what to do, sexy vampires and werewolves will do you just fine. Uh, but yeah, I just couldn't get into it. And... I mean, it was it was written in presumably like the 1700s. So there were different techniques at play. There were different types of readers reading. Uh, but even I've read old books and liked them, and this just was so dry and sad, and, and there was nothing endearing about it, and there was nothing that said to me as a reader, "Hey, you know, this is gonna go somewhere." It was all like everything's terrible, and it will be for the duration of this book. Um, and sometimes that's what you want, but I don't think that. Uh, there are a lot of readers anymore that want that experience. People want, you know, they want to be hooked, they want to feel involved, and they want to feel uh, invested at a fairly early stage. And I think that if you hadn't committed to liking Ready Player One, you might have given up by Chapter 4. I might have if I hadn't bought it. <laughs> yeah, I find... Um... As a reader, I mean, my, my habit as a reader has always been to force myself through books. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually learning now to stop reading a book if I don't enjoy it. Yeah. And that's okay. There's, there are so many, so many books out there. And I think it's, it's more of a shame to be forcing your way through books that don't say something to you than to, uh, you know, you could, you could be, you just give something a chance. But if it doesn't hook you, it doesn't mean it's a bad book. It just means that it's not doesn't have something for you right then. I mean, I, I remember I tried reading Game of Thrones uh, back in the uh, late 90s when I picked the book up, and that prologue killed, killed it. I, I started reading the first couple pages and nothing happened. But then, of course, the TV show came out and everyone's raving about Game of Thrones. So I picked it up again like, 10 years later, and wow, did those books ever have a lot to say uh, to me. And, and I can say the same thing about The Wheel of Time. I tried reading it as a as a teenager, and I think I made it all the way up to book six. Yeah, I didn't get through book six, but I finally just stopped. Uh, I just wasn't ready for it, and then I picked it up in my in my mid-twenties, and uh, at that point, it was just like that was the moment I was meant to read those books. So I think, uh, you know, that in terms of getting through a book, I mean, it could be that it's 
it's not for you or it's not for you at the time. Uh, but unfortunately, I, you know, there, there's also this issue of books can sometimes be poorly edited. And by that, I mean, uh, we're, we're in this age of the indie market. The indie market is huge. There's a lot of people who are, who are publishing themselves. And so it's so important to have good editorial. Um, so, so, you know, you're, you're, not everyone is going to necessarily like every, you know, you put a book out and everyone's going to like it, right? There's that factor. But also, even if you do give it to your audience and you don't tell the story true, you, you've got all kinds of excessive stuff. Uh, one of the points I was going to, that, that I, uh, was going to bring up when Lizette was speaking earlier, um, was about this idea of where do you start the story? And if the story starts in chapter three, then if that story starts in chapter three, and then you're going to have to look at the author rewriting the beginning and restructuring it. So uh, in terms of how we do uh, editing, the first step is always that read through. And I, I mean, I sort of design things that way with this, with this company, because uh, in modeling what they do in the traditional industry, you have a, an editor, the first step, they don't even make any markings on the manuscript. You read it as if you're reading a book. And you think about it from that angle, like where is this? Where is it falling off the tracks? Uh, where does this need to be rewritten, tightened? Where do we need new scenes? Uh, and it could even go to the end. Does the end fall apart? Is it? You know, does it not resolve? Are you setting things up? You know, it's like uh, you introduce a, a gun in Act One and you don't use it in Act Three, like all these sorts of things. So you read it through and you think you think structurally, and and then you go in at, at with that you develop it. Um, so I think, you know, if a book has been given this treatment and you, you, you connect it to the right audience, um, that's great. I mean, uh, unfortunately, though, if you're reading a, an indie published book that hasn't been subjected to the right treatment, there might be a lot of fluff that will, that will turn even the right audience away. So, yeah. Yeah. And to that point, from an editorial perspective, when I read a book and I, I start it, if I'm editing it and not just reading it for fun, I do try to imagine who it's for. I yeah. try to imagine that I am that audience. Am I a twy hard? How hard am I twying? You know, like, <laughs> <laughs> what exactly is it speaking to, to the twy hard in me? And I think it's important to sort of be able to put yourself in those shoes and say, like, man, the fangirl in me is really loving this beginning, but the editor says maybe not. Like, it's, it's a hard balance, but you have to sort of put yourself in the shoes of who it's intended for. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, have you yeah. ever... Has your opinion as a reader ever compromised your editing? Is that a hat that is easy to put on and take off? I don't think it ever has. Like for me, it's not. Uh, it's not really a problem. Like, um, I sometimes I like something, but I like things better the more like well edited they are. So <laughs> there's really no contrast there for me when I'm enjoying something as a reader. Um, it, it works for me, and if I'm not enjoying it as a reader, then if it's not meant for me, it's easy for me to just come at it from a technical perspective and mm -hmm. say, you know, what just logistically needs to be changed here. I mean, that seems like the responsible thing to do. It's, after all, <laughs> it's your profession, right? You should be able to, to separate yourself professionally from the thing that you like to do. Because I can't imagine it, that someone who doesn't have that particular skill set of separating their reader self and their editing self enjoys reading anymore. Uh, because letting go of the technical aspect and just saying, okay, I'm going to read this book. We're going to see what happens. 
Um, but I wanted to actually call back to something that John was talking about with the prevalence of independent publication options uh, and the assumption that books don't need to be edited or that if you've gone through it privately three, four, five, ten times, that it's really well edited and ready to go. And I think that's a mistaken notion, not that people are necessarily bad at editing their own work, but it is vital and critical to have someone else, uh, preferably a professional set of eyes, take a look because this is a thing they're trained in. They are trained in helping improve the quality of a story told uh, from, you know, high level developmental stuff down to the very basic grammatical stuff. Um, and it's cool when there's a service out there that will provide editing services for you. There are a number that do this, uh, but there is, I think, like an enormous avalanche of books out there that aren't being edited. Um, and you know, obviously we're here to, to change that. Um, but I think, I mean, we've been talking for about 20 minutes now. I don't know how long you guys want the podcast to be. I'm thinking 20 to 30 minutes is a pretty good amount of time. Uh, I really like the idea for the next topic about uh, pitching or about distilling a book into something that is presentable to a variety of audiences, but we can talk about more things offline later. Um, I do want to see if we can do uh, like a tag that wraps the show, like final thoughts on the topic of hooks. Um, and I don't want to start because you guys are super articulate and intelligent. <laughs> um, so let's, let's come up with a good, uh, a great question that we can ask and answer as a group with, you know, a short monologue each about uh, finding the hook in your story, whether or not to go with a prologue, or uh, if it's okay to wait until chapter three to deliver that punchline that sinks the reader in for the rest of the story. Okay. And whoever wants to start. <laughs> So, and you're just, you want us to answer that question, whether, whether it's okay or not. Um, I, in my opinion, the story needs to start on page one, paragraph one. Um, now that said, every story needs setup as well. I mean, the, 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 you know, the start of a story is the opening sequence. We need to meet a character. We need to, we need to connect with somebody who is clearly, you know, there's some kind of conflict. There's some inner tension. We have to get a sense something is wrong, something, or if something is right, something's going to go wrong. It's, it's sort of either or. And, uh, you know, if, if you have an opening page, it's just a big description of a, of a hill or a forest. And, and then finally, by the end of the page, you meet a man walking on a path. And then, and then the second page, you might find out his name. You know, if that's going on, that, that's most, I mean, some readers will wade through that. But I think that's a huge risk to take as a writer. Um, you should ideally, uh, within the first paragraph, like uh, the very the very first example that you read, what was that book called again? Slow the, Bullets by Alice yeah. Reynolds. First paragraph, you had information that immediately connected me to uh, the protagonist or the, the main character there. And there was a sense that there's some inner conflict. And of course, for me personally, I heard about uh, choosing uh, choosing art over um, 
uh, art was illegal or so there was something like that, which that, that got me interested because that's just like I, I'm doing that in my own book. Um, but I mean, even if, if I, I didn't have that interest, I think a lot of people relate to the idea of what would it be like if you were not allowed to practice your art? That's, that's a very universal concept. So, uh, but I mean, just things like that. I mean, there, there's immediate hook. And even if you have a prologue, you can do that in a prologue. If you write a prologue and the prologue doesn't do that, then the prologue should go, not because it's a prologue, but because you need to be writing where the story starts. Yeah. So, yeah, that would, that would be my, my thing on that. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that, like, I want to be involved from the first word. And for me personally, I really like character-driven books. And the more clever they are, and the more sort of not hero they are, the better for me. I want, like, conflict right away. And if that comes through the character or the setting, like, I don't really want to, like, sit in the classroom with them and watch the clock. I want to, like, jump in and, and start fighting something. Uh, just in whatever way that manifests itself in the book, whatever action they have to give, I want it, like, pretty quickly. And I want the, the character, to like, their protagonist to be the main introduction for me. Yeah, I agree with that. Starting with character, I think, is way better than starting with, like, setting or... Uh, I'm not really sure of another example. Well, I think that's, you know, <laughs> they, they call it world-building disease, right? Where you spend all this effort, all this time exactly. building this fantastic, massive world and populating it with one-dimensional characters. You know, you're Conan the Barbarian times 500 with one female <laughs> character whose best attribute is that she listens. Uh, which is like garbage and stop doing that work. Um, <laughs> there are just better stories to tell and those have all been told uh, over and over again. Um, I, I like this notion of, of character within milieu because people love so much to tell a visual story, um, but that's not a story. Um, that's that's describing a bunch of things. Uh, and so what you do get from, from these hooks that we've just kind of touched on is this idea that it's not so much the event, but a character's response to the event that we find really enticing. And so you can have something that's a pretty basic event take place. You know, the bell could ring, but what happens when that bell rings is where the hook lies. Um, and... Well, I would even, um, like, um, in addition to starting with character, I think starting with feeling is also a really good place to start. Like, um, you know, if there is going to be a bell ring, is the character excited? Are they fearful? Are they nauseous? Whatever. Like, yeah. there should, it's, it's always really good to start with a feeling because then readers can tap into that, you know, right away. Well, even if it's something feeling... they can't relate to. Feelings make you ask questions, like, mm -hmm. why are they so happy? Why are they nervous? And if you're asking questions, that's what you want from your reader on the first page. Right. You that's want them right. asking questions about what's happening. Because that's why they turn to the next page. They're like, well, exactly. maybe they answer that. It's like, yeah. it's just on the other side of this flap. Um, <laughs> never. It's never on the other side. <laughs> no, it's like several flaps later, uh, <laughs> at a minimum. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I guess that's, that's wonderful advice, I suppose, to, to me as a writer who's trying desperately to do the writing thing, and as an aspiring editor who wants to learn techniques to identify uh, 
issues that I can't articulate very well as a reader and then learn how to repair them as an editor. Um, so I think with that, unless Dale, do you have anything to add? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I gotta say everyone has made, uh, really awesome points and I agree with a lot of them. And for myself, when I, as uh, Lizette was speaking about a character being the hook into a story, as I see it, the first character that you introduce the reader to, that is essentially going to be the main vehicle, the main seats that they are going to strap themselves into and determine whether they, they are going to keep going or not throughout the story. Because a story is like a roller coaster of emotions and stuff. Like, you have your high points, you have your low points. And if you can't get hooked into that seat, a.k.a. the main character, you can't connect to them if you can't invest yourself into them, then they're not just... readers aren't going to bother with it at all. Mm -hmm. So, Definitely. yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I would, uh, like, I, I want to add to sort of what Dale said there about, um, I mean, definitely that first character you get introduced to, uh, there's, you're, you're sort of, it's just like uh, the reader meets them and is going to feel like, well, this person must be important because I'm meeting them right away. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're dealing with a book that introduces multiple characters, every time you introduce a new character, you have to, it's almost like the story begins again. There has to be an mm -hmm. opening hook. And I would carry this even further to say that every single chapter has to be treated like the beginning of a story. Uh, because every time somebody puts your book down and picks it up to read it again, you're, you're asking them to reinvest in, in the story. <laughs> so so, the, so, yeah. so the techniques you're using, you look at the story as a whole, and, and, you know, you need your hook for the story, but then you have all these little wheels. You know, each chapter is like its own little mini story. Yeah, George yeah. R. R. Martin does this brilliantly mm -hmm. uh, in his uh, his chapters. Every one of them feels like uh, a, set, a set of short stories that are inter interlinked that tell a big story. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, I, I, I really have taken a lot away from him when I think about story structure and how you really can connect to character what characters are feeling and the tension and it's got to be a focus and like something is going to happen that's going to move the character forward on their journey. Mm -hmm. um, and even if you have multiple characters and you visit different ones around, you still have all these different arrows that are flying forward and they all have to continue to do that. Um, so, yeah. That's a really good point, John, because I've read books that have good hooks in the beginning and then they fizzle. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then you're sort of like more disappointed in the end than you would have been if the beginning weren't so good. That's right. Yeah. 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 That's the ultimate betrayal, I think. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> it's one thing to like start boring and stay boring, but to start out awesome and then get boring, that hurts. Yeah. yeah you start yeah. with a murder and then the rest of your book is just like a lawyers yeah. going to work. Just bathing about. <laughs> and this is why we do that structural edit first that read through because you know the beginning might suck and then the rest of the novel is fine but the reverse can happen the, the beginning can be awesome and then 70 pages of the you know the rest of the manuscript completely fall apart and then sort of we're, we, we come at it a little bit like story doctors i mean uh, i think i think the term book doctor it was popularized a little bit before the ebook market took off as it used to be if you're trying to submit your book to an agent for publication, and you couldn't get it published. You hired uh, what they called a book doctor, who would read it and and give you feedback on how to write it, and make it better. 
Um, but I mean, that's not, I don't really like to use that term because uh, in a sense, when people come to us, uh, they are ready to publish and they want to go through the process. So of course it always begins in the big, in the traditional publishing houses, they do the exact same thing. They have a, a first editor who reads it, gives an editorial letter, and then the author does radical rewrites if needed. And then the inline revisions begin. So, um, I mean, you have to sort of see the whole roadmap. And, uh, and so, so, you know, the, the, it could, the middle could say, that's another issue. You could have perfect beginning, perfect end, but the middle, you, you're not going to get to the end once you hit the middle. And that's another very common issue that comes up in, in, um, in manuscripts so that, that require editing. So. Yeah, I actually uh, I had a thought earlier when I heard you say something again about the traditional publishing business, and I, I wanted to add this comment about the fact that a lot of the decisions that were made in terms of generating that process over, you know, probably hundreds of iterations of trying to figure out how to publish books before the advent of the web, those considerations were made very deliberately. Why, you know why step A through, you know, triple A prime, because there's so many steps to publishing traditionally with edits, with re-edits, with agency, with publisher, with design considerations, and all those things are condensed into like six people now. Um, mm -hmm. And inevitably things get sort of lost in the shuffle because publishing a book of any kind is a huge undertaking, even if you're doing it on your own, honestly, especially if you're doing it on your own. Um, mm -hmm. And so to model a uh, an editing group after this traditional idea, I think, is going to be really effective for independent authors because those decisions were made intentionally uh, mm -hmm. for those editing techniques for the process. Um, so I think that a lot of people can benefit from that approach. Yeah. So that's just my two cents about editing. Yeah, it is very common. About it so far. Well, you do see very commonly uh, freelance editors um, or just. Yeah, and if, I guess freelance editors would be the right term because uh, uh, the, the common approach is just to edit a story and you might revise it a couple times and then, it go, and then it either goes to publication or it goes somewhere else. I mean, that's commonly how it's done. And uh, about uh, almost two years ago when I decided I wanted to do this differently, I did a lot of research into how editing models work and I really thought, hey, it'd be great if authors who want to want to publish themselves can put something out that has gone through the same editorial uh, ropes as uh, what they would get traditionally. I mean, the one thing that they're not going to get with us is like people who've been working with tour books for 25 years and <laughs> have worked on 800 novels or something. Not uh, yet. Not yet, <laughs> but we're getting there. <laughs> Talk to me in 25 you know, years. That's right. So that's the thing. We have to start somewhere. So why not start with the model? And the model can build on this tried and tested thing that's evolved from the industry. And it, I mean, it works. Those books and shelves, the, the stellar quality you see when you pick up a book that you bought from Chapters or Barnes and Noble, wherever, wherever you might buy your books. I mean, that is the fruit of this process. And like you're mentioning, Elon, it's sort of, um, it's evolved over time. And it's, it, it come, came to be that way for a reason. Uh, you know, trial and error. I'm sure they must have tried different things in the earlier days, but uh, definitely the idea of having three people on board to move down the stages from the most abstract to the most concrete 
uh, that that's quite important. Uh, whereas just one editor who takes it all on themselves, uh, unless the issues are very light and the genre is one where turnaround is quick, uh, I, I definitely advise this break broken up approach. Um, so sometimes romance genres where the word counts are forty to fifty thousand, uh, and the authors are trying to put out a book a month. Uh, we might relax some of these like three-person maneuvers, but we still have but I approach from the same level. Uh, that's sort of the cascade editing uh, style that we've we've been using for some of our clients. But it's just a way of condensing it when the issues are fewer and turnaround is quicker. But you still use the model. It's uh, it's it's very uh, very important. Awesome! I think that was a perfect closing statement. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> um, how do you how do you go all feel? Agreed. That was good. Fabulous.